G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Deet. Today is Tuesday the 8th of August and our topics this week are Australia has axed a bunch of the space programs, budget cuts, and what is the future of the Australian space program and its industries. And of course, then we're going to move on to, are we going to miss our renewable energy targets? Uh, A little bit of foreshadowing there, most likely. (laughs) Of course, then we have our two ticks down talk. Don't don't stop listening. We've got other things coming. (laughs) I haven't spoken everything. Um... (laughs) <laughs> of course, then we have our Tutix Town Talk. This was a little bit personal this week with the, with the uh, uh, little Tutix Town Talk. Uh, and then we're going to jump into this week in Australian history with our deep and finish off, as always, with a Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, the last couple of weeks, we wanted to shout out to some of the countries around the world where our listeners are located. And this week, we want to say kia ora. Hey, cuz, to all of our listeners in New Zealand, to our Kiwi friends over in New Zealand. We love you very much, even if we do make fun of you probably too much on this show. But Adit, how are you today? What's been going on this week for you? Kia ora to you, uh, DK. I'm surprised you're not smelling garlic wafting through the microphone and oh. along, along the, the wires. Went out for uh, our wedding wedding anniversary the other day um, and uh, there's a French restaurant uh, nearby, oh, yeah, a bit of a little bit of drive that we we go to and they do these the snails there. Oh, oh God, they're just so delicious, but there's must be, well, the exaggeration to say close to a a clove of garlic for, per snail, but bloody hell, they are just, I just, it just oozes out of my pores afterwards. But each time I go, I keep, I listen to their specials. I think, oh, I like this, but always go back to the, tend to always go back to the snails. Um, yeah. So that was, look, that was a, that was a good feed, but yeah, I tend to, uh, tend to exude a bit of garlic for a, a couple of days, particularly the, particularly, particularly the next morning. So yeah, look, that was good. Good to go out and uh, celebrate the the anniversary. That was uh, thirty three years. So that's been oh, wow. a, a, been a while. Yeah, and we had a a nice four degrees this morning, which I thought you would. <laughs> Sometimes I see those temperatures. Actually, it was four degrees with a felt like two point one because I was I was in the office and the uh, air condition oh, had put on the the heating. Uh, it's just the reverse cycle that we've got, and it stopped. And I checked out the temperature. I thought, ah, there we go, because it seems like once it gets down to, uh, you know, down to that sort of level, particularly when it's got a, a feels like there's something in the system where it just needs to, I don't know, recalibrate something, or uh, it was just that sudden, sudden drop. You know how just before your first light or at the start of first light. You get there. You can often get that real drop in temperature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was was that, and I've had it a couple of times where the um, the, the, the heating stops for yeah, about ten minutes or, or something. So I don't know. I don't know. Don't understand why. But that was what made me look at the temperature. I thought, oh, 
I'll mention that to to you because <laughs> you always enjoy not having to be uh, not having to be subjected to that level of of cold. Man, there is a reason I live in Queensland. It's because yes. I hate hate the cold. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was just telling our dude just before we started recording that I'm I'm wearing slippers, but I'm also wearing a singlet because I live in Queensland. My feet are cold, but the rest of me is. I've also got a fan on, so oh, I, like oh I, I forgot to tell you that. So like, oh, yeah. I, it's what a, it's what a horrible winter. Yeah, it's a horrible winter. Um, it was pretty warm today. I think it was like 25, 26 today. Um, but the temperature has been dropping off uh, at night and sort of like early morning. Um, and, yeah, the Queensland winters, you know, we're just sucks, quite frankly. And we can't handle the cold really at all. Two degrees makes me feel sick. That makes me want to spew. That's disgusting. Um, <laughs> if... if you can tell a Queenslander because we'll be wearing in winter. We'll still have shorts on, and we'll put a jumper on. It's very rare that you'll catch me in long pants. So um, I very much have have the uh, the shorts tan, as is the fashion in Queensland. Uh, but speaking of Queensland, things to do this weekend. I did go uh, uh, got, got the the Forby pretty muddy uh mm. out at some local tracks i actually got embarrassingly enough i actually got stuck and i posted a picture onto uh the r slash australian subreddit for my post environment monday photo of myself in my triton stuck in a big mud hole um it's sort of my fault though because i didn't take my Toba hitch out and I think it got hung up because it sort of sticks out at the back obviously Um, and I think I think it hit the bottom of the mud hole and kind of got hung up because I I could move I wasn't like completely stuck I could sort of move back and forward a little bit but I just I didn't have enough traction to get you know sort of up and out and I think it was because the uh, the tow bar was hitting hitting into the mud which to be fair I didn't think this track was going to get as gnarly as it did Mm. Uh, I probably should have hopped out and pulled it out and uh, just left it out but does it stick? Oh, probably, I don't know, maybe 15 centimetres, something like that. Um, oh, but okay. it, so it, not, it, not unusually long. Yeah, not unusually long, but right. okay. but it is it is at the point where you're, uh, we sort of call them a departure angle. So, you know, as you're coming up and out, you know, the, the rear end, uh, tilts down towards the ground and oh, so okay. you know the furthest part obviously is what going to hit first and i think it was was the 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 tow bar um but it wasn't a worry we had some max tracks uh we threw them in the hole i got traction and got pulled and and recovered myself straight away so it wasn't an issue i wasn't in danger or anything like that um but it was fairly funny it, <laughs> like i said it's the first time i've ever been stuck and my mate was very much uh my mate who was four, four wheel driving with was very much uh in the mood to make a lot of fun of me about it <laughs> uh even though i've pulled his his uh phobia out a number of times so you know, you got to cop it when 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 it happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to be fair, it was a pretty gnarly bog hole to get stuck in, so I'm not I'm not too embarrassed. But um, oh, fair enough. It did look from that photo. It did look it did look pretty uh, deep and like an arc in like a, a, a decent arc in it. Yeah, there was. It was sort of. It was. It's. 
it's kind of hard to see and it doesn't really translate well on 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 the picture but it was um uh quite steep and it was very rutted out which you, you cannot tell from the photo uh where my passenger side wheel was was basically in that photo it's like floating in the air it had no traction at all to that wheel so um yeah it was a pretty gnarly bog hole but we got through we got out we had a good time uh and my car was absolutely filthy i was i had probably a hundred kilos of of thick clay mud case to the underside of my car so quickly got the gurney out thank goodness and got it all off because i did find some today uh that had dried and it was like concrete and i was like oh i'm glad i got blasted most of this off uh before i sat down and had a beer because if i hadn't it would have been a lot more work getting it off so it's not completely clean. I kind of like having a little bit of a dirty four-wheel, even though my wife hates it. Um, there's just something nice about a, a four-wheel drive being a little bit dirty. Uh, you know, it shows shows everyone what it's used for and, and that it's not just a it's not just a nice car. It gets off road and and gets hits the tracks and all that kind of stuff. So, if you have a really nice clean four-wheel, I encourage you. Go and get it dirty. It's what it's built for. Uh, go and go and have some fun. Especially a lot of these modern cars, they're really, really capable off-road. Way more than probably most people realize. Um, so go and get dirty. Go and have fun. Did you ever remember hearing about that spray-on mud? Spray-on mud? No. Why? Why would you spray on mud to make it look like you've been out having a good time, but you haven't been? When you said that, I just wonder if you'd ever. I thought I'll ask you, see if you've ever heard it. No, but that definitely sounds like you know, like a um, an April Fool's joke or something like it that. Does. You know, um, but then again, uh, there's there's been a lot of dumb stuff in the in the four wheel driving community. I won't lie, and it wouldn't surprise me if that was something. I don't think that would be very popular in Australia, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was more popular overseas. Uh, but where where being, you know, be, getting off road and four wheel driving in Australia is so common. Basically, you can find tracks damn near everywhere. Uh, whereas in other parts of the world, obviously, it's not it's not like that. I know the UK and Europe's pretty scarce in terms of uh, places you can actually go off road. So. It wouldn't surprise me if that was legitimately a thing in places like that where you can pretend that you've been getting all muddy and getting off-road. I don't know. 2005, an article in the Garden, Garden, Guardian, spray on mud, the ultimate accessory for city 4x4 drivers. Uh Apparently, it was a thing over in where, according to Mr. Dow, he sells the products which retail at £7.95. So, this is oh, um, okay, yeah. yeah, going particularly well in America and London. Wow, spray according to the company's website, spray on mud can help give your friends, family, and neighbors the impression you've just come back from a day shooting, fishing, or visiting friends who live on a farm, anything but driving around town all day or visiting an out-of-town retail park. That, so there you go. It was a thing. It was a thing. And that's oh. just sad, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do understand, especially like in places like the UK, you are pretty limited in where you could where you could sort of get off-road and get, get a bit muddy um, because they don't really have the four-wheel drive um, – like culture like we do here in Australia. Yep. Um, 
because I think really every state and territory in Australia, there's lots of places you can go for drive. We're very, very spoiled here in terms of that sort of stuff. The, the Americans, our American listeners, you like guys like to call it overlanding, I think. It's basically the same idea. Um, but of course, it was invented here in Australia. So the, the whole concept of four-wheel driving and we're sort of at the cutting edge of, of technologies and, and modifications and performance enhancement and, you know, camping accessories and all that sort of stuff. So we very much are sport for choice here. And uh, if you if you are, you know, if you are into it, you do live in a capital city, which is more likely than not, and you don't get to go out often, don't waste your weekend this weekend. you got no excuse. I'm telling you right now, you got to get out, get in your 4B, go for a drive. Uh, and just honestly, this was a local track, not just, just around the corner from my house, like 15 minutes from my house. I didn't even know it was there. It was part of a, a sort of a conservation area. There was actually a sign that said this area is closed for conservation, but someone had kicked the sign over. I only noticed it after I'd driven past. So don't crucify me in the comments. I'm not a bad person. I didn't know. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I think you'd be surprised at, at how accessible a lot of these places can be um, if you've sort of just, you know, got the um, got the just just the motivation to get out there and have a look, really. Did you say I, you, I wanted to hear the rest of what you were saying. Did you say four wheel driving was invented in Australia? As far as I'm aware, and this is just from memory, but I believe the concept of what we call four-wheel driving was invented in Australia because the particularly harsh and unique environment of Australia meant that unlike other areas of the world, like in the Sahara or in the Americas and things like that, the, the infrastructure and... Uh, like the road infrastructure here was was particularly poor when they were putting in a lot of like telegraph lines and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also unlike other areas of the world where they've done a lot of what now we'd call sort of four-wheel driving, like like in North Africa and things like that, the the outback is is not uh, very consistent in its landscape. It does change quite a lot. Um, and so, you, so Australia has a very unique... Uh, sort of environment to drive a vehicle through, to cut through the bush and make your way, you know, ac- across this great continent. And as a result, it became a bit of a competition between a number of manufacturers who could build a vehicle that basically could could put up to the punishment. So w- what we call now four-wheel driving and what we know as four-wheel driving really started here in Australia um, and kind of and that and again it's it's still huge here and it's um, we're very much at the forefront of four-wheel driving technologies including things like uh, modifications for your for your four-wheel drive, camping accessories and all that kind of stuff. So it's oh, all sort of led, led the charge. Yeah, it is it's pretty cool because you yeah. know it's um it's it's synonymous with Australia, but of course it's not it's not completely unique to Australia. Um, it's very popular in places like America as well. Yeah. Um, but 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 what we know as four wheel driving was started uh, in Australia, and, and it's really really a big part of our culture. So, oh, there you go. Speaking of things not in our culture, Australia's space industry is in limbo after axing key 
programs. The Australian space industry is warning the sector is in limbo and facing an uncertain future with the axing of several key space programs. The $1.2 billion National Space Mission for Earth Observation program was terminated in June by the Albanese government as a budget cost-cutting measure along with three other space programs. The observation program was intended to fund satellites that would be used to provide data for everything from weather forecasting to GPS to natural disaster response. This is an industry-wide hit, says Beck Shrimpton, the Director of Defence Strategy and National Security at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The confidence has gone out of the sector, which means that across the board, companies are not attracting investment. The ability to attract major money here is gone for a number of companies. They will have to move their operations overseas. Government support for the space industry needs to be bipartisan. I think the problem that we have at the moment is it's being treated as a partisan issue, she says. Though, in an interview with the ABC, Science and Industry Minister Ed Husick denied the decision to cut the billion-dollar program was politically motivated. He said it was about making savings in the budget. He says the program was announced in the dying days of the Morrison government. A nine-year government decided in its last budget, weeks before the election, that it would put forward this program. No tenders were let, no contracts were entered into. Several space industry insiders who spoke to the ABC were concerned that the fledgling industry wouldn't survive into the future without government support. Adam Gilmore, founder of Gold Coast-based rocket company Gilmore Space Technologies, said that the industry was very disappointed with the cuts. He says, I remember when the National Space Mission was cut. I had a very busy phone that day. A lot of people from the industry were calling me up to say, what do you think is going to happen? You know, what does the future look like? And there was a lot of distraught people in this industry. So that was a pretty dark couple of days. Mr. Gilmore has said that space industries in the other countries relied on government to support to get off the ground. And he called on the government of Australia to do the same. If you look around the rest of the world, the government has always in a successful space economy, an early customer. They'll give the space industry the first deals, they'll kind of lead the way, and the industry can springboard off the top of that, he continued. Professor Professor Alan Duffy, an astronomer at Swinburne University, said that the cuts have been a chilling factor in the industry. Hmm. The space industry is currently in limbo, he said. But other Australian space startups have been less concerned about the decision to cut four space programs. Matt Pearson, co-founder of the satellite maker Fleet, said the industry should be driven by private investment, not government funding. He said the Australian space industry is really commercially led. The space agency has been set up to fuel a commercial space industry, which is very different from how other agencies have done things in the past. And that's what everyone wants in the future as a commercial space industry, rather than a government-led space industry. We are scanning the subsurface for resources, whether it's critical minerals or the water on Moon and Mars, Mr. Pearson said. 
They also have contracts with Defence, who use satellites for com communications in remote areas, and Mr Pearson said that he supported the development of ho a home-grown satellite industry. To date, we've really leveraged our partners' space assets, and we lean heavily on our Defence partners around the world who have their own satellites, but Australia really doesn't have any assets of its own, so it's important that we start to develop our own capabilities. Sort of harks back to what we were talking about last week as well. Yeah, yep. He continued, you really can't, sorry, you can't really opt out of the space industry. You're going to use the services no matter what. So you're going to spend the money buying it from overseas or developing it and developing Australian jobs right here. So that choice, I think, is a difficult balancing act. And I think that kind of sums it up really nicely. It, it is one of these situations, it's a chicken and egg, where the government kind of really needs to help kick off the industry in theory however a lot of these technologies have kind of matured enough that i don't necessarily think that there it needs to be that way i, I completely understand why a lot of the people in the industry are freaked out because once the government starts pulling its funding you know that that that's a lot of money sitting on the table and when that disappears things are going to get tough but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing long term what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I tend to I tend to agree with you on that. the The key question for this was: uh, Does Australia need a, a space industry? And I think yes. I think if you want the nation to develop as a, a standalone nation uh, that supporting itself with with comms, uh, with uh, the ability to produce produce their own produce our own means of getting satellites into to space uh all the associated technology that comes with uh the space industry not to mention the manufacturing capability then i think that's a pretty easy yes to say that we we do need it um whether or not government investment is the only way i tend to agree with you that it's not really just a lay down I think it probably depends on what products and what services are offered. There's some uh, th there's some things like communication satellites for the the ADF, the the Defence Force. To me, being able to provide that sort of um, product, I can understand why government would get involved in that. Although interestingly, that uh, where was it? It was the satellite maker fleet that you mentioned. Said that they're, you know, selling their services to the the space agency. But I don't I don't know who's launching them. I know they're doing the satellite, uh, but yeah, Australia so far doesn't really have the ability to, as I understand it, I'm happy to be corrected, to do regular and specific launches of of satellites. So I can understand the government coming in for areas like that. Research and development, I've got to say, I I wax and wane about uh, how much government needs to be involved in that. Now, I've heard some very good some very good arguments for why it should and how important it is to the development of a nation and subsequently humanity as it, it spreads out. I, I'm less I don't know, look, I'm, I'm I'm less 
excited about that, but I can accept that somebody who knows more than me can give me some very good reasons. It's not something that I particularly am enthralled about, but the ones where we need the basic services for communications across what is a very large land area that we have to to measure and the ability to um, offer scientific uh, expeditions into space, you know, not necessarily for people, but at least for you know, satellites and probes and even as that, again, that uh, satellite maker that was met, mentioned doing some surveying of the, the moon. But what I've seen with uh, the information they can get from surveying landscapes for mining uh, purposes, that to me is the bread and butter of Australia. And if we can be self-supporting in that rather than relying on an outsourcing yet another um, yeah, another skill set, another high-tech industry, I probably can be convinced about you know, government chucking in a few bucks into it, much as that pains me to to say it, but I think overall I agree with um, the concept that it should really be a privately driven business ultimately. But, yeah, I mean, you can hear the indecision in my voice because yeah. I don't yeah. like government being involved. I don't like them throwing money at it, but I can see the argument for something this large in essential areas of what services they provide, that there's a good argument for government to get some things kick-started. Yeah, and it's, it's yeah, it, it is one of these tricky ones because you're right. I think there's, with all these things, there's a balancing act that needs to be um, between, between private investment um, and, and public money because, you know, the, the public money, of course, it, generally speaking, isn't paid back, um, but oh. there, there is there is a, a, a basic infrastructure question as well. Like, as far as I know, I, I don't think there is a launch uh, f- facility in Australia right now. I know there's one in New Zealand for, for small satellites and things like that, um, yeah. but... Uh, and and I and you know I, I sort of look to New Zealand as as a good example of I, I believe the government didn't have a lot of investment in that and it was very much led by private industry. But there are a lot of places around uh, the east coast of Australia that that could be potential launch sites and things like that. And I part of me originally was hoping that with the expansion of the space industry in Australia. Uh, and the National Space Mission was kind of going to lay some of that groundwork, some of that basic infrastructure uh, to really, and this pun isn't intended, but to get this off the ground. Um, But I think it's also uh, what the science and industry minister, (laughs) um, science and industry minister uh, Ed Husek said that, this was a program that was set up in the very last days of the Morrison government. Uh, it could have been, you know, a bit of an election push. Mm-hmm. Um, but is this, you know, I think it, there's a really good argument to be made that government kind of shouldn't be spending money on things like this right now. Um, there's a lot of bigger problems going on in Australia right now that, you know, the government 
probably should be spending a bit more time and money focusing on. But at the same time, you could argue that that's always the case. And if you're not going to, yeah, yeah. if you're not going to, you know, invest in in, a, in something like this, there's never really a good time to do it and that sort of stuff. So I do think it's good that the defense, um, the defense industry sees the value in this and is using some of the defense budget to have contracts with um, Australian satellite manufacturers uh, yep. fleet fleet specifically um, like you said I actually don't know where they where they're launched from um, it could be it could be in New Zealand but I also think this is something that I think we've briefly spoken about this before and again this is kind of like the green hydrogen thing I don't think we want to be left behind um, in terms That's of right. Yeah. Of you know, I, I hate to use the cliche term that there is a space race going on, but there sort of is, but in an industrial way, not not in a national way. And we don't, we really don't want to be a country that doesn't support new industries like this. Um, and we've missed the boat before on certain things, and I think this is somewhere we could. You know, have the have a bit of foresight to think. Oh, maybe there's something in this, and we should um, spend a bit of money on it and that kind of thing. But again, I think it it needs to be in in sort of that groundwork level stuff, and not propping an industry up. Um, is that what that one point two billion dollars was going to be used for? Probably not. But I think that money could be better used at this time, and maybe come back to it. Um, in the future, I, I don't know, but oh, you, you sound pr- pretty much as uh, the, the the same as me. Can't, you, there's good arguments both ways. Yes. Uh, so, look, maybe we're luckily we're not going to have to decide, but I think we're probably in agreement that as you use the term infrastructure, and when you applied it to that, I thought that's a good. Uh, d- description for stuff that could be described as infrastructure, and I would argue you could say the ability to launch your own defense satellites could be squeezed into that. I can see a good argument for it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because you know, as we were sort of talking last week, and we have in the past about how you know we need to be a bit more independent with our national security um Mm. and you know the world is changing and and all that sort of stuff we won't rehash everything we've said in the past but this is one of those another one of those situations where having a uh, having a domestic capability to do this and also a capacity for our international partners to potentially use in in a conflict situation in in times of disaster and things like that You know, it, it, it's not a waste of money. It's employing Australians here on Earth uh, to the, the money's being spent on Earth. I can't stress this enough. Every time we talk about space thing, people always say, ah, oh, they shouldn't be spending money on sending things to the moon. The money's not being spent on the moon. The moon economy is zero as far as I know. Um, the, money, the money is being spent here on Earth, uh, you know, in Australia, on Australians, giving them jobs and things like that. Um so, from a government point of view, I don't think this is necessarily a bad investment. It just needs to be spent in the right way for the industry to take over. And I think that's always going to be the clincher. Again, we've said this before. This is the same thing with any new industry. Um, 
you've got to be smart about how you, you spend your money and not just wasting it. You don't just want to throw it. It's a lot of people that see big money on the table, like $1.2 billion is nothing to sneeze at and they get, you know, mm. uh, they get all excited and want to start doing things, which is good, but there has to be a certain level of responsible investment from from industry and from from the government as well. Yeah, and look, the the, the idea of uh, the first words spoken by a space miner on an asteroid being "G'day, mate, welcome to welcome to new um, uh, new what's what was that? What was your favourite?" Um, Place that had the underground. Thing. Oh, Kuba, Kuba Pedi, yeah. Kuba Pedi, yeah. Okay, yeah. mate. Welcome to Kuba Pedi two. Two yeah. Two point I'd love to love to just imagine that. You know what? Yeah, yeah. As, as he's got a space Kuba on top of his, yeah, um, space you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it just it fits nicely, doesn't it? So yeah, and used um, to living in the living in the uh, tunnels and. You just uh, and yeah, we've got the mining background here. And exactly, at it all some fits. Point we're going to be mo- it does fit. Yeah, it, does it all fit. fits. It oh. all fits. Um, yeah, no, yeah. And again, like always, my favourite catchphrase: "Watch this space." I'm sure we're going to come back to this. Uh, yep. Probably in the next budget, they'll probably allocate some money towards the space industry or something like that, and we can we can get back into it then. Uh, in the meantime, I think it's time for our two ticks town talk. So this week's two ticks town talk is coming back to my native state of Queensland. And this one does have a little bit of a personal story from earlier this week. Uh, earlier this week, I, I, I had ordered a new part for my ute from our online four wheel drive retailer. I won't, I won't name it shame which one it was but uh what actually turned up in the post was it wasn't the part that i had ordered i'd received someone else's uh uh ordered product uh and that bloke's name was bill uh and it turns out that bill received my package a couple of days after i had received his and the online store was actually really unhelpful in resolving the mix-up uh bill's Bill's package was considerably more expensive than mine. Um, so he, in, in the package, it had, you know, the invoice, which is very common. So he had my contact details. I had his contact details. He gave me a call once he received it and said, uh, you know, how do you want to do this? What do you want to do? Um, and I told him basically I'd had no response and no luck from the company over the last couple of days whilst he was waiting. Uh, so... We agreed that we would send each other, he would send me my package, I'd send him his package. So we were both out of pocket the same amount, which was about 10 bucks in postage. Um, the reason he hadn't, he received his so many days after I had was because Bill, lovely Bill, lovely bloke, he lives in the really small and reasonably remote town of Cloncurry, which is a small rural town located in the Shire of Cloncurry, Queensland. Uh, in 2021, it had a population of 3,167 people. The town lies adjacent to the Cloncurry River, and cattle grazing is the most significant industry in the region. Now, Bill was a real stand-up bloke, and I've sent him off all of his stuff, and by 
absolute chance that he's listening to this. Big shout out to Bill. Um, the the town is very small, and the major industry there is mining. So let's get into a little bit of the history, though. The and I, I really apologize if I pronounce this wrong, but I believe it's the Kalkatungu language region in the northwest of Queensland, including the local government areas of Mount, the city of Mount Isa, including the township of Cloncurry, uh, is the native uh, Aboriginal uh, people. The first Europeans to traverse the area of these tribal lands were actually Burke and Wills on their epic and ultimately fatal transcontinental expedition. We may do a special on Burke and Wills one day. If you'd like to hear that, please get in touch with us. Let us know. We can do a bit of a rundown on the Burke and Wills epic uh, transcontinental expedition. Uh, the Cloncurry River was actually named by Burke after Lady Elizabeth Cloncurry, his cousin, with the town eventually being named for the river. A man named Ernest Henry discovered copper in the area in 1867, and the town sprang up to service what he called the Great Australia Mine, just to the south of where the town is now. During World War II, so fast forward quite a number of years, uh, during World War II, Cloncurry was the location of RAF number three inland aircraft fuel depot, completed in 1942, and it closed on the 14th of August, 1944. So a little bit of the war, uh, not a lot though. More interestingly, before World War II, a man named John Flynn conducted the first official Royal Flying Doctor flight. It took off from Cloncurry in 1928 using a de Havilland DH-50 aircraft hired from then the small airline known as Qantas. So this ties back to our Longreach episode because Longreach isn't too far from Cloncurry. Right. The following year, Flynn's radio expert, Alfred Traeger, installed the world's first pedal radio at a local homestead, which helped transform the once isolated outback into a connected part of Australia and on to the rest of the world. Oh. So there, there what, what is now... Date, what date was that, did you say? Uh, 1929. Hmm. So there was a lot going on out in the outback, Uh I think Qantas, I think the Qantas um, sort of starting up and everything like that out there really probably inspired and kicked off uh, the Cloncurry the uh, Royal Flying Doctor's service. Uh, we are talking a distance of about just under 500 kilometres from Longreach to Cloncurry. So not exactly a small distance, uh, but remembering, if we do remember from our episode, of course, uh, Qantas didn't start in Longreach. It started in Winton, which is a bit closer. So whilst these towns are, you know, over 300 kilometres apart, in outback terms, that's just down the road. (laughs) So I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there was a bit of cross-pollination of ideas and things like that um, out there. Uh, Today, what's what's out in Cloncurry today? What do you want to go there for? What does Bill do? Uh, Well, I... 
I have no idea what Bill does. Uh, he probably works in the cattle industry, if I had to guess. Uh, but there is a John Flynn Museum dedicated to the founding and pioneering that he and his mates did to create and expand the Royal Flying Doctor's Service. So that's the big draw in Cloncurry. Uh, there is also an Cloncurry Unearthed Information Centre and Museum, which includes relics and artefacts from bygone era of the area. Although the mu- th- sorry, throughout the museum, they pay tribute to Australia's first people, explorers, Chinese migrant workers, Afghan camelliers, and the pioneers who wo- worked and established themselves in the rough and remote conditions of outback Queensland. They actually have Burke's water bottle on display. It's a bit of a claim no wonder to fame. The poor bloke died there. That's it. He died at first. Why? Because <laughs> yeah, he, left, he left a street bottle in Cloncurry. Um, and I thought this was quite interesting. They also have uh, an Aboriginal artifact exhibit, which includes the breastplate once worn by George, King of Friesland. Now, I didn't know what this was. And we're going to go on a little bit of a tangent here just to explain. So, it turns out, uh, according to uh, Google, uh, what was quite common in certain parts of Australia was uh, the white colonial authorities would give uh, Aboriginal uh who who they would declare as the Aboriginal leader of the area, uh, these, like, breastplates, typically made out of, um, like, copper or brass, and they would wear them around their neck to signify that they were effectively the, the chief or the king or, or queen of that area, and they would specifically write their title, whether that be chief, king, or queen, on, on the, the breastplate. The problem was the Aboriginal people and a lot of their communities didn't really have what we would call kings or chiefs. They often lived in small small clan groups and they had several elders who would sort of consult each other. So it was more like a group would be leading the, the, the Aboriginal nation as opposed to us, any individual person. However, of course, Colonial authorities came from from Europe, particularly Britain, uh, where things were very different, and having a single leader was was culturally appropriate. So they kind of didn't care and just went, "You're the king. Wear this. When we need you, we can identify you with this." So very much ingrained in colonial racism and 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 oppression of the local people and all that kind of stuff. But I do think it is quite interesting. Uh, that in Cloncurry they actually have the local local uh, uh, I don't want to say leader but George King they have his breastplate that he once wore. Uh, the other big draw to the area is the natural landscape, of course, uh, including a place called Chinaman Creek Nam. Uh, not the most politically correct name these days, but I have heard it's really really great place. Uh, you can safely swim, get a boat, get out on the water, that you can fish there and generally have a good time. And to round this out, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention that politician Bob Catter was born oh. in Cloncurry in 1945. Oh. It's probably why he's such a good bloke. <laughs> probably. 
<laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I've I've never heard of the um, that breastplate. Yeah, it's complete completely unknown to me. Do you know if that was a a northern um, Australia type of thing, or I just that, like that? Just that's the first time I've heard of it. No, actually, uh, on on uh, on the Wikipedia for it. It lists a number of uh, known individuals who are, who were awarded breastplates, and they've also got photographed some some um, examples of them in uh, museums as well as being worn by certain people. And they have them from from the ACT, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Victoria, Western Australia, and the Northern Territory. So basically, everywhere and anywhere. There was. There seems to be something that was um, very common all over Australia, which is quite interesting, and it's something oh, I never knew about either. No, um, no. First, it doesn't even ring a slight bell. Uh, it's it, it just even even when you were uh, talking about uh, was it King George or who yes, was the King name? Yes, George. Yeah. 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 Like, even the assigning of of titles and that. Well, that's. That's really interesting. That's I uh, didn't even know that was a thing. Yep. And I think that's what's cool about these segments and also just about the little places around Australia, our little towns, which is the whole point of this segment is you do find out little things like this, little gems uh, that you had no idea about. Um, and it gives you, you know, a little bit of an inspiration perhaps to, to, like I said at the start, get out, get dirty, get the 4 yep. out there. Yep. Go and visit some of these places. See what you see. See what you find. Um, because but I you thought I know. Even need a Forby for, for a <laughs> lot of. Them. No, no. You could just. You could. It's a long way, but you can drive there. It's it's tarmac the whole way. Like I said, depends on where you live. Unless you live in Mount Isa, which is not far up the road, which is now the 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 sort of district capital of of that area, part of of Queensland. Um, yeah, if you live anywhere else, it is very far. Um, to get out there, but there's no reason not to. Um, only excuses, <laughs> which is easy to say as someone <laughs> that's, that doesn't want to drive, you know, 24 hours to get out there. So, oh, yeah, yeah um, fair enough. <laughs> speaking of falling short, Australia will most likely fall well short of its 82% renewable energy target for. 3030. So plans by the federal government for Australia to generate more than four-fifths of its power from renewable sources by 3030, sorry, 2030, 3030, 2030, <laughs> uh, coming under pressure amid claims the country is way off track. 3030 they could probably make. 3030 probably, yes. 2030 <laughs> not so much. <laughs> uh, renewable, renewable energy advisor Nexa has joined global analyst uh, Rystad Energy in finding Australia's green energy share is likely to be 60, barely, sorry, let me say that all again. <laughs> renewable energy advisor Nexa has joined global analyst Rystad Energy in finding Australia's green energy share is likely to be barely 60% by the end of the decade under the current rate of progress. As part of an ambitious plan unveiled last year, 
the federal government has set a renewable electricity target of 82% by 2030. Now, we know the Albanese government has loves its ambitious plans, but this one is particularly ambitious in my opinion because Australia currently generates only 30 to 35% of its power from renewable sources such as wind, solar, and hydropower. The forecast that Australia will undershoot the goal came as resistance grows to a number of major high-voltage power lines that backers say are essential to connecting the ever greater amount of wind and solar generation. Opponents of planned transmission lines in Victoria have stepped up their attacks on the proposals, which which they claim would cause needless social and environmental damage while saddling consumers with billions in extra costs. At the same time, calls are growing louder for some ageing coal-fired power stations to be kept open for longer to ensure a shortfall in green energy does not jeopardise the stability of the power grid. This is wild. Hmm. NIMBYs, as we call them, not in my backyard, are stopping the high-voltage infrastructure that's required to connect all of these wind and solar installations. Tony Wood, the director of the Grattan Institute's energy program, said that it was looking increasingly unlikely Australia would be able to hit its 2030 target. He said, and I quote, on the current trajectory, we're going to fall short. Plain and simple. According to Mr. Wood, delays holding up the construction of high voltage power lines are at the heart of Australia's slowing progress. He noted that a key plank of the federal government's renewable energy agenda was its so-called rewiring the nation scheme which has set aside $20 billion in low-cost loans to help kickstart the development of the transmission lines. However, Mr. Woods said that the policy looked incapable of solving the underlying problem. He says, rewiring the nation corporation is an interesting idea because the idea is to... was. The idea there was to provide low-cost finance. But low-cost finance isn't the issue. There's plenty of money going around. The problem is approvals. In a recent report, energy analyst Nexa Advisory found that 60% of the electricity generated in Australia's biggest grid was likely to be renewable by 2030 based on its current trajectory. Rystad Energy, a global consultancy headquartered in Norway, forecasts that just 64% of Australia's electricity will be renewable by the end of the decade under a business-as-usual approach. David Dixon, the firm's vice president of Australian Renewable Energy Research, said congestion in the transmission network was throttling the country's ability to achieve its goals. Mr. Dixon said that Australia needed to add about four gigawatts of scale, large-scale wind and solar power a year to meet its target, the equivalent of two large coal-fired generators. Mm. But he said that the country was falling short of the required pace, hindered by a lack of transmission and storage capability to soak up and move around excess electricity. 
What's more, he said Australia's renewable energy output would continue to be stifled so long as the grid ran largely on coal-fired power. While coal plants can be turned down to accommodate surges in wind and solar power at windy and at sunny times, he said they typically had to run at between 30 and 50% of their maximum output for technical reasons. This results in the curtail of renewables, which would otherwise generate more power. For Mr. Dixon, the government could pursue relatively straightforward policy changes that could help ease some of the pressures on Australia's transmission. Among these were moving the subsidies flowing to households to install rooftop solar panels to instead encourage them to fit batteries. He said this would simulate uh, demand for battery storage to soak up excess rooftop solar generation and reduce peak demand in the evenings. The current economics favour installing rooftop solar only, he said. This is, he's referencing the current economics of government incentives there. Yep, yep. On top of this, Mr. Dixon said that there, was, there needed to be more certainty for investors looking to build large-scale batteries, suggesting that this could be done by our auctions to decongest the existing transmission network. In the absence of such measures, he said that governments may be left with fewer, few op- other options than to delay the closure of coal-fired power plants such as Origin's giant 2,880 megawatt. I think this is Irang? Irang-rang? I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. E-R-A-R-I-N-G. E-R-A-R-I-N-G. Oh, let's go with what you what you, <laughs> yeah, you know. I think it was right. Uh, this and and this is the country's largest single generator. Um, it's it's scheduled for closure in August 2025. That's two years away. But the New South Wales Energy Minister Penny Sharp is coming under increasing pressure to keep at least some of the plant online in a move that would reportedly cost the taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars per year. In short, if we're unable to construct adequate transmission, firming and renewable capacity before the scheduled coal plant closures, it would be reasonable to delay the retirements of coal generators, of course. Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen has said uh, has maintained the government can meet the 2030 target, saying it was ambitious but achievable. It's a little fashionable in Australia to say it's too hard and that we won't lift from 35% renewable energy today to 82% by 2030. I think that's kind of true. Mm. We, we can be, it's very fashionable in Australia to be like, eh, too hard, give up, move on to the next thing. Um, I don't, I feel very strongly that we shouldn't do that in this situation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot riding on this and it's pretty important that we do uh, hit now 82% by 2030 is very ambitious, in my opinion. If we fall short and it's 62%, I think that's still not bad. It could be better, but it's not bad. What really concerns me though is effectively the the the, the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard crowd that are effectively stopping this because they don't like the look of high tension, high voltage uh, power lines running through the countryside. No one does. They're ugly. 
Um, but the reality is they're critical infrastructure, just like highways. Highways are really ugly. Uh, and so are rail lines. Like none of the stuff is pretty, but the reality is we need these things um, to function properly. Uh, and as much as it's really good saying, oh, let's just build a massive solar farm in the middle of the outback, which we absolutely could do, uh, you can't move that energy easily from one place to another without losing a significant amount of that energy. So we need to be smart about this. And that's going to mean we're going to have to spread a lot of this stuff out, which means we need transmission lines to move the power around which means we need to build more of them, which means the NIMBYs need to stop and we need to do this because the, the alternative is that we're going to keep burning coal. So what, what's the preferred outcome here? Well, look, I suppose part of that is the, uh, yeah, part of that argument is that the, the coal, you know, the infrastructure is already set up there, there for it. But, you know, the, yes. is, is the, uh, need for more energy grows. We're going to have to build power lines anyway. And you know, I've made my views clear about nuclear energy in the past on the 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 podcast. And you know, I think existing coal fired uh, power plants are a great place to to put nuclear power. But you are you're right. You are still going to have to get over the transmission hump. Which can be mitigated to some degree by uh, local storage. Look, for, for me, there was, I heard a lot of excuses in this, which, you know, it's, it tends to be typical with these promises. And for, for me, there were sort of more fails in this than a solar farm on a, a cloudy day. But that centerpiece excuse, um, that the uh, what, what was that quote? There was that ABC article, ABC article by Daniel Mercy. Might said the forecast that Australian will undershoot the goal comes as resistance grows to a number of major high voltage power lines. I thought that was a poor excuse for poor management, and the reason I say that was the resistance to power lines was in place well before these unachievably grandiose promises were made. It's not a new thing that's come about just because this has been announced. And additionally, for something that was is so potentially costly to the Australian taxpayer, in my opinion, there's a duty of care for the, the pollies and bureaucrats to ensure they've done even the most basic research into what they're promising and at least got an idea of how are they going to actually send this power from A to B Where's it going to go, and what's the local feel about it? Now you have uh, you have mining companies who are hammered with the ESG side and getting local buy-in. Uh, I don't see why that should be exclusive to private industry. It should also apply to to government. Now the cynical amongst us may suspect that the time and effort was spent more researching what could help win an election and con a pre-primed public rather than actually looking into the reality of what was uh, required for the, the articles. But uh, try not to be too cynical on here, even though I am a little bit bloody cynical about <laughs> that. Uh, look, I, 
I'm a big fan of re- renewables. I'm a big fan of clean energy because I include nuclear energy in that. I think it's it's the way to go, and you can have all the opinions you you want on uh, on coal. I don't think it's necessarily the the demon it's made out to be, but the pollution is a huge problem, and I think you know we need to we need to be moving away from uh, we need to be removing away from all that sort of the fossil fuels, the gas. I can hear some arguments for and against, but it comes down to the basic. Um, I don't know whether you'd call it a, a maxim or or not, but if you want to have a successful economy, you've got to have an economy that has plenty of energy and plenty of affordable energy. And Australia is just in such a such a good position to be able to use clean energy to produce more than what we need at the at the current moment. And encourage other industries it comes back into what we were talking before about the uh, the space industry we had the ability to bring in higher technology and higher manufacturing and grow the grow the nation for you know the next 100 years based on clean energy and based on a a large amount of affordable energy which has boosted economies you know, in the the modern era, more than anything else, if you don't have energy, you don't grow. So, and I would probably also agree with you too that, I, and God forbid I give uh, Albo a, a bit of kudos, but I would agree with you that if you're setting that target, and you get about sixty percent away there, you've still got sixty percent away there. It's still a good leap. Exactly. Like, you're not wrong. I mean, mean, it's more than 60% of the way there Um, because their target was 82% renewables and they're looking at between 60 and 62% um, reaching that target. So I think, again, this is a bit like our first situation where it's kind of a bit of a genetic type situation. The the planning commissions, I'm sure, are going to come through at some point. because this is like these, this infrastructure is literally critical for, for you know, this Victoria is not going to go, oh, well, we're just going to have rob blackouts because some farmers yeah. don't want you know, a high tension wire on their fields. The laws are in place for them to put in this basic infrastructure. I understand that people don't like this. I completely get it. And it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, well, so bad, too bad, so sad, when it's literally not going to affect me. Um, But at the same time, the reality is these sort of infrastructure projects are, are, are literally the lifeblood of this country. And if we don't do this, if we don't build up this infrastructure, we're going to miss these targets. It's going to cost us more money in the long run, and we're going to get left behind as the world transitions from fossil fuels into renewable energies. I think there is an argument to be made that um, – oh, sorry, what was his name? Uh, David Dixon was saying – that the federal government and the state governments could turn uh, the the um, government incentives, financial incentives, from 
just providing rooftop solar to then providing the the battery storage and things like that. There are some, yeah. there are already some incentives, but they aren't, there aren't, they're not as substantial. Um, I know many, many years ago in Queensland, there was a, there was a bit of a shortfall in terms of, uh, electricity generation and they were talking about the potential of having to build another another coal-fired power plant however the government at the time uh really put a lot of money into rooftop solar and that definitely took a lot of pressure off the grid oh. obviously it's not a silver bullet because the sun does go down uh as we all know um every 12 hours uh and that is also when a lot of people are getting home from work, they're getting home and they're turning on and they're cooking with their electric cooktops and they're heating their water and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So there's a huge spike between that sort of 5.30 to 8 o'clock at night um, where a lot of domestic electricity is used. There is no reason that a lot of the houses in especially parts of the country like where I am where a lot of people have rooftop solar because it does make a lot of sense. Uh, and there's a lot of the country like this uh, where we can take a lot of the pressure off the grid during those times by having, even if it's a small battery pack that can run your house for, for those couple of hours, it's going to take a lot of pressure off the grid. So I think there's an argument to be made. I think, you know, again, there is there's many ways to skin a cat and there's lots of options here that the government could do to provide um, the easing because if we can ease the 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 load on the grid during those sort of peak times that also means we can ease back on the grid um, in terms of you know again how much coal we're burning how much gas we're burning mm. and all that and we're reducing those as well so there's kind of a there's multiple ways we can look at this and and approach this problem from again Places like South Australia for a few years ago very famously bought that massive Tesla battery to Ooh. supply power and all of that kind of stuff because they're so heavily invested into renewables. So there's, there's other things like that as well um, that they could look at doing on a, on a grid scale level. Lithium-ion batteries grid scale wise aren't, in my opinion, probably the, the, the best way to go. Um, I think there's other technologies out there that sort of make more sense. Um, yeah. Lithium-ion batteries are quite expensive and they're not exactly the, the greatest for the environment. Um, but when, you, when you've got uh, something like a car or a smartphone or something like that, they are very light for, for their energy density. So having yeah, them in a car yeah. makes sense, right? If, you've, if you're building a facility that literally is never going to move and kind of doesn't matter how much it weighs, it seems silly to me that you'd use lithium-ion battery. Yeah. There's other battery technology that you can use, you know, that is in a lot of cases it's actually cheaper. Um, so, so there are grid-scale storage issues that I think we can look at as well. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which way we go. We need to move the electricity from where it's generated to where it needs to be used. And yep. the only way to do that, that makes any sense at all, is these high-tension power lines. we got to build the power lines. And the, and the thing is, and I can't stress this enough, they're going to build them. It's just when do you break the ground and how long does the public consultation go on before you just say enough's enough, this has to happen, and we're going to do it whether you like it or not. Yeah, look, and I did hear an acronym um, 
banana built almost nothing anywhere near anyone uh it was it was <laughs> by, by an uh, american uh mob on the financial sense podcast and they were talking they're from california and they were talking about a similar problem over there of you know well we want to have this but no you can't build that near me yeah just i suppose another another uh twist on the the nimby the nimby thing but you're right it it the problem can't be solved with without it and even as i'm hearing myself say that uh i don't know whether someone else is going to say you can do xyz or you can put it underground i'm i'm guessing underground is um is more expensive than yeah the, i believe you can do it underground but yeah it is yeah. just very expensive yeah 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 uh, i think that uh twist in the the subsidies i mean we we've got batteries here at our place you know not not enough for self sufficiency but enough that uh power generated by our panels goes into our batteries and we get to use it first rather than um, sending it out to the the grid and then paying you know three times what we were paid for it to come back in so we get to we get to use it first and we got that uh, by a subsidy scheme that was offered down here in Victoria it was only it was only small numbers and it was I think I had about God, was it five months of just getting there with the computer ready and everything just uh, for the, the time it was released? And most of the time, yeah, everything was gone within like seconds. So it was a, it was a real sort of uh, of lottery, but I ended up getting getting in and that was really sort of the clincher for us to be able to get those those batteries. So, so how, can, much, how much yeah. did it cost you? Like what was your out-of-pocket expenses? Or do you know what the rebate was? Uh, my out of pocket expenses were was sixteen thousand. Oh, so um, yeah, look like reasonably high still. Bloody bloody oath. And the rebate, yes, yeah, the rebate was. Oh, I want to say it was something like seven thousand. It's been a couple of years ago, so I could be a bit bit hazy. We had yeah, it was we were that, that was going to be going over overseas celebrating our uh, our wedding and our thirty year wedding anniversary, but of course the coof descended on, on course, everyone, yeah. and yep. so um, that had been another thing on our, our out on our wish list. And this subsidy came up. We thought, well, if we can get it, um, it means we can sort of swing it. So yeah, so certainly look, it certainly wasn't um, certainly wasn't cheap. And if we didn't get the subsidy, I'm not sure that we would have gone down that uh, that route. Um, but we did. And when you made that comment about the the government subsidies, and I'll refer to my comments before about the uh, about them, um, I did think if you can change that emphasis, then you can nudge people. I know that's a a, a term that governments like to use now, but you can nudge people towards particular directions yeah and we're seeing look we're seeing this sort of thing happen with with electric vehicles i think in every state and territory there's some sort of incentive um or or, or, you know rebate it it doesn't make it 
you know, a lot of electric vehicles are high-end, uh, high-end sort of what we call more luxury type vehicles. So, you know, they're, they're not, there's very few of them that are under, say, fifty to $60,000. So, you know, if the government's giving you, say, a, a $3,000 rebate on, on a new car, yeah, it's not really going to make a big difference ultimately. Like, nice to have, thanks. Yeah, I'm not going to say yeah. no, but it's probably not going to change your mind between purchasing an electric vehicle and, say, maybe an internal combustion engine vehicle. Um, I do think, though, because people that are people that are putting solar on the roof or are generally looking for these sorts of um, you know battery systems and things like that are people that own their own home they're not renters because of course there's no benefit to do that um, for a house that, that you don't own um, and they most likely have a mortgage which they can easily uh, or, or reasonably easy easily tap into some of that capital that they've already built up within their home to access some funds to do something like you've done um, mm. Out of interest, because I believe this was a few years ago that you did this, does your house run overnight with the the battery system? Uh, no, not generally, no. And that's because we, we've got about, um, I think it's about 0.5 kilowatt per hour um, running with, uh, the the pump in the the um the the septic tank like the water the water treatment one oh, yeah. um yeah. Uh, uh, things like you know the security system some other things left on plus I'm not one of those people that runs around turning off all the things on on standby uh, but look there's a, there's a few things like that 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 is a constant drain and then because because we're also using it um, as as well, you know, because you you throw on you throw on things like kettles and um, you know a bit of aircon on that, and you can you can go through it fairly fairly quickly. Because we're yeah. actually using it, we generally don't have full batteries sitting there by the time that we're getting into that that peak hour thing. Because you know, I'm at, I'm at home. Both of us are at home, so I suppose if we if we weren't then during summer and that I would expect it would would do us through, but uh, for our lifestyle, no. But it certainly certainly makes a big dent in the the power bills because you know we're we're getting to use our power first and all that power that we use we're not drawing from the the grid. So you know it's um, it goes a long way, but uh, not yet at that self sufficient side. Because how big is your? What's your battery capacity on your house? Ah, oh, I knew you'd ask me that. Um, <laughs> God. Um, because the reason I ask is yep. I wonder if you because Victoria is not exactly the sunniest state in the yep. country, um, but if you were somewhere further north, um, I wonder if your battery capacity because it would be charging more throughout the day i wonder if you'd be able to 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 sort of run your house at least the vast majority of the time for, very frustratingly for me as far as i can find there is no um there's there's subsidies on um like installation of solar panels that that's a national thing um but each state and territory kind of has different 
subsidies around this that they'll do in terms of you know electric vehicles, in terms of feed-in tariffs, and in terms of all sorts of things. Um, Queensland doesn't have uh, any battery um, incentive at a, or, or rebate or anything like that. Uh, but it surprises me that Victoria still has um, uh, like industry loans and things like that available for homeowners to, to access this program, which frustratingly, because Victoria isn't the best state for solar, you'd think mm. the states with more solar would be pushing this sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like it just seems a bit yeah, backwards. I do, I do know what you mean. And that uh, comment that you made before about it taking a bit of a load off the um, the, the grid and the need for generation in the areas, yeah, I would have thought there was a bit more of a payback, uh, a payback there. But look, yeah, we, I mean, winter, you know, winter you notice a big change. But you know, yes. coming coming yeah. out of winter into spring and particularly summer, um, yeah, it gets a it gets a fair a fair whack of of power. And we had when we got the batteries in, uh, the old panels weren't uh, weren't going to be sufficient to make the batteries viable. So we got we had to uh, replace the panels, um, which was included in that amount. Um, which which is a bit of a mitigating thing that might that might change some of the, the calculations if you're mentally thinking of it, and then uh, about oh, probably probably a year or two later we decided just to get the old panels which we'd kept also installed up on the roof with their old in, inverter. So oh, yeah. you know it it helped boost that as well. I mean they were just sort of sitting there. We could have had them recycled. Yeah, we thought oh let's see if we can use them for something else, and in the end. They said, look, yeah, we spoke to them. They said, look, if you lay it out this way and that, you're going to be able to fit them into to there as well. So, yeah, that also helps. It meant they didn't have to go to the tip or to the recycling or whatever happens with the old solar panels. We actually get to keep using them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Which, and every every little bit helps. So, th- look, yeah, this exactly. is, yeah. And, and this is, this is one of those frustrating things where I feel like even the politicians, understand the solutions to the problem it's it's all set out and you know it, it, the plan is there everyone can see it everyone can read it and it's basically the bureaucracy is holding things up again i can't stress this enough i understand that there are people that are going to be losers to this in that yeah. they're going to lose access to parts of their land they're going to have to deal with you know if you live on a beautiful farm uh, running running uh uh, dairy cows or something like that. You don't want to look out your window and see a big high tension power line. I get it, but at the end of the day, it's for the benefit of everyone, and these things are going to have to happen if we're going to move in this direction, which is the direction we're moving, which is the direction everyone's moving. So this sort of has to happen. But I do think, as we've sort of been discussing, there is more one is there is more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. I don't know. I've never skinned a cat, but there are more solutions to this problem than just individual smaller things. And all those individual little things can add up and make a big difference over time. If the Queensland government, Anastasia Palaget, I believe, listens to this podcast. So if she is and you hear me now, I would love for you to bring in uh, her solar battery um, scheme or a low interest loan or something like that <laughs> so that I can put a battery in my house uh, and we can take some of that pressure off the grid. Um, 
That would be nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Watch this space, as you say. Uh, watch this space. Things will change. I mean, we'll probably come back and re- re- actually relook at this because, of course, 2030 is, uh, you know, just under, uh, what, you know, six and a bit years away. It's really not far away. These things are going to have to move very, very quickly. We've already discussed things in the last couple of weeks uh, on the podcast about green hydrogen and, and, and massive solar farms and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of really exciting things that are happening. And I think, again, like the climate uh, climate change and energy Miss minister, Chris Bowen said, it's ambitious, but it is achievable. And once these hurdles are overcome, there's no reason that the floodgates won't open and, and you know, everything will, will roll along nicely. It, you know, that's, that's a really nice positive way to end. Um, even if it may not be the most realistic. So let's move on to this week in Australian history. All right, this week in Australian history, and we'll, we might scoot through this one. I just had a look at the uh, the time. We're covering August 3rd to August 9th. Uh, August 3rd, 1918, Australia House opens in London. And Australia House is where the High Commission of Australia is located. And it was Australia's first diplomatic mission. 1962, the first members of the Australian Army Training Team Vietnam arrive in Vietnam for the shit fight that that was. Mm. Mm. August 4th, 1845, the ship uh, Kataraki, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, C-A-T-R-A-Q-U-I, is wrecked off the coast of Tasmania. The 406 people on board drowned. Now, this was a British bark that was uh, bringing assisted emigrants from Britain. And unfortunately, uh, it wrecked and they died. Bark was a new word to me, B-A-R-Q-U-E. With your naval background, you know what that is? Yeah, it's a type of ship, yeah. Yes, Yes, a type of ship with something with like three three masts and some they started getting into freaking mizzens and spinnakers and fours and aft's and I got lost, I lost, and I thought, well, DK, I'll know what it is. At yeah, least. your your eyes glazed over. Yeah, I think it's I think the designation is that it it typically has three masts, uh, three main masts. Um, you know, most people think of just like old school sailing ships as. It's just a ship with sails, but of course, they are different sizes, uh, different ways the the sails can be arranged, and all that kind of stuff. And as a result, that kind of designates if it's this type of ship or if it's this type of ship, and why one's better than the other, and all this. This is a rabbit hole we could go down, and I could talk about hours and hours and hours, but I won't. I'll save everyone the naval history. Let's move on. <laughs> 1851: The Governor of Western Australia complains of receiving too many contacts. Contacts, convicts as 300 ticket of leave men arrive unexpectedly. 1914, Australia enters World War I and 400,000 Australians participate directly. That's a freaking huge number. It's a huge number, hey. 400,000 uh, men and boys, effectively. Um, yeah, it's, it's huge. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that was. Well, speaking of shit fights, August 5th, 
1806, Captain William Bly arrived in Sydney to take over the, the governorship. I think he arrived and he said, this is just going to go swimmingly. <laughs> Um, 1944, at least 545 Japanese prisoners of war attempt to escape from a camp in Kaura. Over 200 people died. There were some guards, but most of them were the Japanese prisoners trying to escape. And this is colloquially known as the Kaura <laughs> Colloquially known as the Kaura breakout. Now we might cover this a bit more in depth in uh, future. But that was when it occurred, August 5th, 1944. So if you want to do a bit of a preview, look up the Cowra Breakout um, otherwise uh, in a future special episode. Might cover that one as well. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely an interesting one that I think think a lot of people may have heard of it, but they don't really know the detail. We could do a big deep dive on this. Again, if this is something you'd like us to do, um, for an episode one day, please let us know. We've, we're starting to grow a little bit of a list of these topics, so we might start covering some of them off, I think. Yeah, and I have I have been started to take note of them, um, particularly for those times when we can't make a regular weekly one for one reason or the other. I will also suggest, too, if you get the opportunity, if you're near Kaura, have a look at the Japanese gardens there. They are just a, a beautiful place to be. I've been there a couple of times. Um, you don't even have to particularly like Japanese gardens, just if you like gardens and things that look beautiful, worth a visit. 1947, Australia becomes a member of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. August 6, 1915, the Battle of Lone Pine begins on Gallipoli. Seven Australians are awarded the VC for this battle. In 1919, Harry Butler made the first air flight over a major body of water in Australia. Should have looked up what what that was. <laughs> that was going to be my first thing. What yeah. did he fly over? Nineteen nineteen. Why didn't I have a note on that? Anyway, I didn't. <laughs> um, Nineteen fifty one. Entertainer Daryl Summers is born. Uh, hey hey, it's Saturday is well known to a number of people. Probably not. Probably not the uh, Gen Zs. What what are the what are the what are the most recent ones? Yeah, the Gen Zs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of stuff on Hey Hey at Saturday wouldn't fly today, but in today it was uh, funny and it was a weekend institution. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. You, you yeah. couldn't record TV in <laughs> the old man back in my days, but you couldn't record <laughs> TV. You, you had to be there and watch it or otherwise you missed it. And uh, a, a lot of people started off this Saturday night with Hey Hey at Saturday. So, look, I enjoyed it. Um, 1986, retailers Coles and Co. and Meyer Proprietary Limited amalgamate. Unsurprisingly, they make Coles Meyer. 1986, a record three, and this is 1986. I didn't even remember this, even though I was up in Sydney. A record 328 millimeters of rain is dumped on Sydney in a oh, single wow. day. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I. Yeah. 328, 20. 328 millimetres is nothing to sneeze at. That's a significant amount of water. Oh, huge. Especially on a city because we need to remember that cities, a lot of concrete and stuff like that, and as a result, the water doesn't soak into the ground and it it builds up. So, um, Well, six people died. 
Uh, said the resulting floods killed six people. Yeah. August 7th. Um, oh, sorry. Let me let me stop you there. I actually yeah. looked it up. Henry <laughs> Butler, the aviator who flew over the... Oh, um, yeah, yep. I had a quick look. He flew from Adelaide to uh, Milliton across the, the Gulf St. Vincent, which is uh, sort of the Gulf at the bottom of Australia where where, where Adelaide is. So that, that huge body of, of water there, that, that's so that's the um, – he was doing the airmail run and was the first to cross a major body of water. So I imagine in 1919 it would have been – Particularly hairy to fly over a large body of water yeah. like that. Um, so good on him. He did it. Ah, thank you. August 7th, 1946, the Overseas Telecommunication Commission, OTC, is established. In 1975, David Hicks, a prisoner of. Hang on, that can't be right. Oh, no, sorry. 1975, David Hicks, a prisoner of the United States government at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was born in Adelaide, South Australia. Um, 1990, John Kane resigns as Victorian Premier over a series of financial scandals and is replaced by the first female Premier of Victoria, Joan Kerner. 1994, the Tasty Nightclub raid in Melbourne sees 463 patrons strip-searched during the police raids. The raid resulted in two drug-related re- arrests, but those charges were later all dropped. That oh, was, my goodness. I, 463 was, people strip-searched for two drug convictions that were overturned? Yeah. Now, it was an LGBT um, nightclub, and there's suspicions that that might have been part of the, the motivation for the, the, the cops going in there. I'm going to lean heavily into those suspicions. Yeah. But I remember it, it was in a case of just wildly overstepping the, the line. I, I mean, you, know, you imagine going to – I mean, most people have an idea of a, a, a nightclub or something like that. Now, you imagine – Suddenly, all the cops running in there, the lights coming on, and then in front of everybody else, they're strip searching you, and in some instances, cavity searching you. As as people Crazy. look, yeah, and some people were still, yeah, were able to were made to sort of stand there, their naked hands against the 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 walls. It was, yeah, it was it was so over the top that I think it fundamentally changed. Um, People's opinion of the police doing that that sort of thing, and I think even if they had had a couple of successful uh, drug related arrests, it was it was a real cultural shift. Like was, when I was going through this history, as soon as I read the phrase "tasty nightclub raid," I thought, "Oh yeah, God, I remember that." So I've quickly Googled it because I wanted to see if there was a lawsuit because I feel like this should. And it turns out there was. There was a class action lawsuit against the Victorian police uh, in May of 1996 with damages well over $10,000 awarded to each patron. The resulting payout was over $6 million, which, of course, was paid by the taxpayers of Victoria. So, Well, of course. Of of, of course. Yeah, look, I... Can't say I begrudge them. That that's uh, yeah. It says here as well the the amount paid out 
would have been larger if all the patrons had joined the class action lawsuit, but several of them hadn't wanted to join because they didn't want to reveal that they were gay. Yeah. Which is also a bit sad because this is not that long ago. This is mid-90s, you know? Yep, exactly, 94. Not that long ago at all. August 8th, 1895, the steamship SS Catathan strikes Seal Rocks, New South Wales and, and founders, killing 55 persons. 1940, sorry, 1914, enlistment for World War I begins. In 1918, Australian forces contribute to one of the greatest advances in World War I at the Battle of Amiens. Yeah, Amiens. Yeah, Amien. Oh, yeah, Amien. Uh, August 9th, uh, 1915, Alexander Burton died at Lone Pine, Gallipoli, Turkey. He was awarded the Victoria Cross. 1942, HMAS Canberra is sunk in the Battle of Savo Island. Um, I don't know where Savo Island is. It's in the... Um... Uh, what do they call it? I think it's the, uh, the, the, like in, around the Solomon Islands in the Solomon Sea, oh, yep. the Bismarck yep. Sea, in that area there. Roughly in that area. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on August 9th, 1962, the federal government bans the drug thalidomide. Um, 1987, Julian Knight commits the Hoddle Street massacre in Melbourne, claiming seven lives and injuring 19 others uh well it's said about him the the better and finally uh 1990 in august the 9th that was when joan kerner became the first uh female premier after john kane retired from parliament <laughs> that's interesting the the two entries yeah after john kane kane retires from parliament whereas the other one you know is kicked out because of uh because of a series of financial scandals. And that concludes the, this week in Australian history. And I seem to recall Joan Kerner didn't mind a beer. That brings us to our Forex bottle top question, which has got little bit of depth in here because I have a feeling you might get this, um, but then I'll ask you a follow-up question. Ooh, okay. Yeah. In what don- denomination did Australia release the world's first plastic banknote? I should know this because I did this. We did this whole thing on banknotes. Um, what was the first polymer banknote? Did we do it on the podcast? Yeah, we did. Oh, we did. Yeah, yes, we did. Yeah, oh, I should know this, but I I can't remember. I I want to say. So you, you'd think you'd think it was like the twenty dollar note or like the fifty, but I think it might have been the ten. I'll go with the ten. Oh, your instinct was good. Yep, it was the ten dollar. It was a yeah. ten dollar note. Now, do you remember what was on it? Because I had to. I'll be perfectly honest. I had to be refreshed. No. No. I, nah. Yeah, okay. I would have been pretty impressed if you'd have got that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. One side of the note symbolised uh, European settlement with HMS Supply, the first ship to drop anchor in Sydney Cove, 
and a medley of persons symbolising all who have contributed to Australia's development since 1788. And the other side uh, of the notes symbolised the original discovery and settlement of Australia some 40 to 60,000 years earlier. It depicts an Aboriginal youth, a morning star pole, and other designs, including from Aboriginal artworks uh, commissioned by the bank. So when I saw, when I looked it up, because I thought I'll have to have to look it up and recall uh, the image, it did ring a big bell when I saw that. So yeah, look, probably if you see it or our listeners uh, see it, and they're old enough to uh, remember that, they may. Ah, um... uh, I've just googled it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, now that, that I see it, yeah. Yep. yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of those things that I would never, you know, you could put a gun to my head and I could never have described that, but you show me no. a picture of it and it's instantaneously, yep. oh, of course. Cl- yep, clear as day. So yeah. the, the supplementary question, uh, and I only knew one of these, uh, who's on the $10 note now? what i was going to say before as well was you could put a gun to my head about the current note and i don't think i could tell you what's on it um i I, do you know what i I couldn't tell you no idea Uh, it's benjo patterson and dame mary gilmore she was an australian writer and uh and journalist was involved the the bulletin and the um uh Union Union movement and yeah yeah one of the one of the Australia's well known uh, well known journalists and writers so that's who is currently on it and Banjo Patterson as we know man from man, man from Snow. Snowy River yeah yeah yep. just, just as it was coming out I was thinking hang on and think of my stuff that one up no, so yeah Banjo yeah. Patterson another another well known writer um, the only one I remember. That's still in circulation, and I guess these are all probably about to change. Um, uh, is the five dollar note has has Queen Elizabeth's face on it, and on the other oh. side it has the the government house. Um, yeah, because they're not. Is it was it? Am I right in recalling that they're not going to put Charlie on there? I'm not sure. This was a topic we had discussed uh, a while ago, and I think the consensus was uh, that it's unknown because, of course, Queen Elizabeth is on all of our coinage, uh, but she was only on one note, uh, and that was the $5 note. So the question is, do we take the monarch off all the notes and just leave them on the coins, mm. or do we do something else, or do we update all the notes? Of course, the notes just went through an update uh, only over the last couple of years, so I imagine these things aren't particularly easy or, and or cheap to to, um, to update. It, it is a big process, so... Mm. I'm not really sure. I think they said that they'll continue to manufacture the notes until the at least the end, the calendar end of this year. After that, I don't, I don't know. So that'll that'll probably be a subject that we do talk about. If they do yep. change the notes, we'll probably do a bit of a, a bit of a, a quick recap, and maybe we'll even go back into the history of this. And I'll tell you what, I'll probably ask you this exact question to test your knowledge and see if you remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so study up, because <laughs> uh, I'm sure one of our New Year. Uh, 
episodes will be about yeah the 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 new notes when they're when they're released and the designs are released. So yeah. And on that. Thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as it helps us out immensely. We need to fight the good fight with those algorithms. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember... At r slash Australian, we are Australian. Good night. See ya, BK. See ya. Mm-hmm.